Um, clap it up for comedy on the street. Yay! Yay! As he's walking around, I'll leave you with one last, this is my super kid-friendly joke, especially for the kids across the street. You guys know about SpongeBob. You know about SpongeBob, right? Who doesn't know about SpongeBob SquarePants? So SpongeBob SquarePants walks in to a boba tea place and he's like, oh, look at this, delicious boba tea. And I like, and there's another, there's a lovely lady sponge there. And he says, oh, I'd love to buy her a boba tea. And uh, nothing happens, everybody's confused. And he asks the boba tea person, hey, what's up with her? And the boba tea person says, don't worry, she's just a loofah. She's just a loofah because they're sponges. A loofah is a sponge, that's my cleanest joke. And uh, yes. I can't think of another joke to end, but thank you all for being here. Yay! Yay!
Listening right now to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse. That's crazy, crazy. And how wonderful that you're doing that. We've been listening to David Brown, who's an incredible artist. But let us also, if we're dealing with Pamtastic's time, please let us deal with the best interview that I did this week interviewing a famous person. Famous, famous person. Oh, yeah. Winnea. Oh, yeah. Winnea. Of Alone Season 6, which is out right now on. On right now on. What's it called? Uh, Netflix. Right now on Netflix, there's this amazing thing called Alone. And y'all should be listening to it <laughs> and watching it. And when you do and you love it, when you watch season six and you realize that when Nia lasted 73 days in the Arctic wilderness, did I just ruin it for you? Oh, I got to interview her. And it was amazing. And we're going to listen to it now. When you hear the trippy music, 
You know what time it is. I'm so excited. Today is a little bit different. I am pre-recording some Call Me Tim because I have the most exciting interview that I've ever had on Some Call Me Tim. Well, today on Some Call Me Tim, I actually have Wania, the beau of season six alone. How did that happen? Oh, things happen on Netflix, and then get into them, and then, oh, you get on Facebook, and they're real people. She's a real person. She answered her fan mail because I am a super fan. It's hard for me to express... I don't want to tell her this stuff because it's weird, but she'll hear it on the thing later. But I am i used to be a reality TV junkie. Before I started living like an authentic life that I wanted to live and spent my time the way I thought it should be spent to like make the universe and my universe and the whole situation better, I spent a lot of time watching screens and being really into reality TV. And in my late 20s, early 30s, I would say that it was my main goal in my life to be on a reality TV show. Now I look back at that and I think like, oh, maybe my reasons were a little more vapid or, but this alone show is no joke. If you haven't checked it out on Netflix yet, season six, wow. Like it's people surviving, surviving as Sonia will put it on her, uh, alone. <laughs> they have cameras, their own cameras. Nobody's filming them. They're filming themselves and they're surviving and they're making their own water or food, finding it, building a shelter. It's like crazy, but great. Not pejoratively crazy. Like, wow. Like superhero stuff. Living the way I would pretend as a child, like in my backyard, like, oh, look what I'm doing. But they're really out there. 73 days. She was out there for 73 days. And I'm watching the show and I'm crying and I'm crying. And there's all these amazing moments. She's dancing with the sun and she's squirrels, thanking the squirrels and being so grateful to everything she ate. And just like, and I'm crying. I mean, oh. It was just, it was amazing. And she's a woman. There were so many women out there. And I was so impressed because I just, when it started, I was like, oh, three women. And she's a feminist superhero. And I can't wait to ask her so many questions. She's calling like right now. It's going to happen. It's going to happen like right now. Okay, I'm like, I did this. I started it a little bit early before she called because I was trying to like center myself so I wouldn't fangirl out on like the explanation of Alone before I started. For those of you who haven't seen the show, it's not like regular reality TV. Let's put it that way. I mean, it is in that they edited things heavily. And I want to ask Winia quite a bit about what they left out. And I watched, she has a YouTube channel on Buckskin Revolution where you can watch the Alone series and then listen to her as she unpacks each episode um, and says like the things 
that she could say and couldn't say because I guess they had a, a DNR or something about the show. I guess reality TV shows do that. You can't release anything before it happens on the TV. But uh, she has her Buckskin Revolution channel that you should check out on YouTube where she also teaches life skills. There she is, there she is. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, here she is. Okay. Oh, see, I already made a mistake. Hi, Winia. Hi, Sam. How are you? I, I already fangirled out a little bit to the audience before you called to like calm myself down and sort of like uh -huh. explain what alone is for maybe some of the people that hadn't seen it. But you're more than alone. Uh -huh. That's the thing, too. I didn't want to just like talk about alone today. Hi. Okay. Okay. I'm calm. I'm together. You're so cool. I'm just like over the moon oh, to like. I mean, you didn't even have snare wire, and you caught rabbits? Okay. I know. I actually got a snarky comment on my YouTube channel today about how bad I did and how they couldn't believe I couldn't catch fish in a lake that was teeming with fish and how bad my trapping was. And it's so funny what people think they know about a thing. Like, they didn't really advertise that I don't have snare wire, so most people have no idea that that was one of the challenges that was going on. You had no fish. Well, that's – and they mentioned that at some point, that each – place that they dropped people each campsite is the wrong word each place in the wilderness where you had the opportunity to live they were all different and so some had fish right. and some had you had uh squirrels and rabbits and berries not everybody had berries right like i had less berries than most people i think actually because i didn't have much in the way of blueberries I mean, every site was different for sure yeah but it wasn't really true that like they all had equal Mm. resources they tried to give them the best you know they tried to make it the best swath and distribute the sites as well as possible but some sites had way more resources than others for sure yeah well which would you but have that's the luck of the job that's the real world right which which uh which which site would you have wanted to be on watching it after would you have said oh if i would have been there did you have even that thought of like oh if i would have been in that no. spot I mean, the thought that had I been in a spot with more resources, mm -hmm. I could have done better and stayed longer. But I was in love with the place that I was. And when you're out there, you don't you have absolutely no idea what what other sites are like and what other people have access to. And there's really no point thinking about what you don't have because that doesn't fit you anywhere. Right. Well, but isn't that what you can do with what you've got? That's a mindset I think that we have in our real lives here all the time is that when we focus on the things that we that someone else has or that we don't have and then it creates like suffering and misery that doesn't even need to be there. It's like what we can exactly. appreciate our own stuff. Okay, so first I have questions not about alone. Where does your <laughs> name, where does Wania come from? What is the derivation of your super cool name? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the story of it is um, one that is interesting and not necessarily super cool. Um, so when I was a teenager, um, when I was uh, 19, I went and I did a summer course. There was a backpacking field study. So it was eight weeks backpacking in the mounds of Idaho, which was amazing. And one of the traditions of the course was that everyone take a, a trail name during that time. Um, just to kind of set it aside as a thing separate from your normal life. And so I did that, and I was really interested in ancestral skills and starting to learn more of these life ways that are the things that I'm into now. And I found a book of Lakota stories, and um, 
Romia was a name. I wanted something that sounded beautiful and had a beautiful meaning and was something that I really identified with. And, um, and so Romia is a really powerful word that means um, like the life spirit when it's not incorporated in a body. It means the breath of life. And so I took that on as my trail name. And after, after going by it for so long, and it was a very, very transformative summer, um, I decided to keep that as my name. And so the, the not pretty part of it is that that's totally cultural appropriation. Oh. And I, you know, I was a young woman and I didn't really have that lens and I didn't understand, you know, I had no concept of that or why it might not be a great choice. So, um, so that's where Wonia comes from, is from a young woman who just named herself uh, a word from another tradition that wasn't her own. And I do think it's beautiful, and I do really identify with it, and it's not a choice that I would make today. But I've gone by that longer than I went by the name I was given. And also, I feel like it's a way to introduce, it's that keeping that name um, brings up the conversation yeah. and allows me to talk about the concept of cultural appropriation. And just like changing it back would be like, uh, letting myself off the hook and pretending that I didn't make an inappropriate choice when I didn't know any better. And it gives me this kind of like this way of addressing such issues from a place of humility as someone who gets it because they've done that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's a great question. And it's not, you know, um, yeah, it's not always an easy subject for me to talk about because of that reason. Do you do you feel like you've earned the name now that you have embodied all these ancestral skills almost like you could call yourself a, a bunny or a rabbit name at this point because you ate so many <laughs> like you you even said on the there was one of the things they actually showed that you're like I'm part rabbit now <laughs> like I'm or that all of yeah, your cells absolutely. were so do you feel like through the time that you've spent being like because you have integrity with these skills that you're that you've embodied and then you're, you're living and you're teaching does that remove or do you still feel some of that no i don't i don't think that there's any earning a thing that is you know something that i took without permission uh, you know so i mean wow. i think that it's not an inappropriate name if you look at it in that way but if you look at it through the lens of cultural appropriation yeah. i don't think that you know, that there is anything that just changes. I mean, sure, I think that someone who didn't have a relationship with the skills and wasn't aware of these concepts, maybe it would be a less appropriate thing for, or it would be more harmful right. for someone else. But I don't feel like that makes it just okay, you know, not That's... unless I had, you know, and, and, I, and I've spoken to Lakota people about this too, so it's not I'm completely without relationship to Lakota people, um, but, you know, yeah, that no, I can't. Because people who are all going to have really different opinions about it. So, but it's, <laughs> it's not it's for an, me to say whether or not I earned it. I guess is the is the bottom line. It's an appropriate. It's an important conversation. Like, because since we're in this crazy time of, I, I mean, what's happening with our world right now? There's so. But to even just to recognize a situation, it's like for me in white guilt. Like I have to constantly come up against it and say, Yeah, I'm. Oh, did I lose you? I lost you. You're back. I know. Sorry about that. No, hey, it's all good. The cell phone here, so. <laughs> and you're out. In, you're up there in the mountains in Grass Valley. Okay, so here's my next question: How are you friends with a giant okay. cat? 
the the profile shot? Yeah, the, the picture the, the of the. You you're looking that? at the. You're looking mm-hmm. into the eyes of this enormous cat. I, I'm a cat person. I'm a crazy cat lady. Like mm-hmm. I love cats. And I saw that picture. I'm like, how are you friends with a giant cat? I mean, that's actually a pretty small bobcat as they go. Um, <laughs> large, large compared to house cats. But that was a cat that had been hit on the road. Oh. Um, so that cat was no longer alive. Oh, really? I thought you were looking deeply yeah. into the eyes of a cat. See, look at me. I completely I misinterpreted the picture. You were. I mean, I was doing that. Yeah. yeah. That, though, that's all still true. So... And, and so for me, when I was watching you, I was so affected and I kept like kind of putting myself where you were. It was so, oh, it was so incredible because you're filming yourself and it's like so intimate because it was almost like I was with you and that's got to be weird right. for you. And I'm wondering how like that affected you with the camera and the intimacy. But also when I was watching you, I kept thinking I could never... And you, there were times where you'd pick up an animal and look at it and be like, thank you, thank you, thank you for feeding me. And, and you had to be like intimate with that animal and pull off its skin and do all that stuff. Is that, I mean, how do you do that? I, 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 maybe I'm just so removed from <laughs> survival and life that like I just couldn't imagine. I mean, I was watching you do it and that was hard for me. Like uh, when I saw Jordan with the Wolverine and I saw his little face and his teeth and I was like, I'm making myself watch this. But like, how did, was that interacting with you? With Were you just so grateful for the food that it wasn't, or that's just not freaky for you? It's just not freaky for me. That's been a part of my life for a really long time. You know, I've raised my own meat animals, um, you know, and I was vegetarian and vegan at one point. So I was like very anti-hunting and PETA and vegetarian in high school. Um, but once I started being introduced to ancestral skills and, you know, I went right from being vegan to processing and eating roadkill. Um, and I'm, you know, I have a science background and a deep connection with animals and it's never, it has never felt like a juxtaposition to me to love and feel connected to a wild creature and to, you know, skin it and break down its body for food and eat it. That is the most natural thing in the world to me. And to me, the barriers that our society puts up and the, the removal from our food source, that's what feels weird and wrong to me. Um, so, yeah, it certainly was not an issue for me out there and nor in my life in general. See, I, um, I, I cook. One of the things I do for a living is I, I, I cook. I have no problem if an animal has no head. Like, I can, I've processed so <laughs> many birds. I've deboned so many birds in my time. Like, it's, but if they have a head, I can't do it. And, and I think maybe it must be something to do with the way I was raised and I was so far removed. Even when I am working with a food source, I'm still removed from it, even when it's whole. So, right. Uh, talk a little bit about Buckskin Revolution and what you're doing to try to create that connection again with people and the way we should, I don't want to say should be living our lives, that's weird, but the way we did for thousands of years and then it's just this little tiny little bit here at the end where we're so removed from it. Exactly, right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've kind of you've hit the nail on the head there that my work with Buckskin Revolution is to kind of um, invite people back into that place of connection, not just with the world around them, um, 
but with our own selves, with our human communities, and with, with our ancestry as humans and what it is that we evolved to do. And absolutely, the bodies that we live in evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, to, to allow us to engage deeply with the world around us. And it's only been a few hundred years that that's completely shifted to where we no longer need a lot of these senses that we evolved with. And I think that you know, the malaise that we see in our modern society and so many people who are unsatisfied and, you know, dealing with depression and feel like there's something missing from their lives. I believe that that is because we are living lives that are so different from what we evolved to do. And that does, you know, that does leave a feeling of something missing. You know, we have all of these amazing sensory perceptions that are about engaging with the world around us. And instead we engage with screens, you know, 12 inches from our faces and we fill our senses with noises. And, you know, like right now there's a helicopter overhead and I can hear the highway and, you know, my ears evolved to the frequency of bird song and knowing what's going on in the forest around me through paying attention to what the birds are doing. And, um, yeah, I think that the degree to which we engage those skills, those senses, those parts of our body, you know, just our hands in, in fashioning things that we need for our lives, there's something deeply fulfilling about that, you know, on a level that we don't even really know how to verbalize. Um, Crafting, well, that, it's that's making... That's what I'm trying to share. When, when humans, I mean, we as humans, all we really have is the ability to create things, right? Either thought or stuff and I feel like and watching you craft it's uh, that was the thing okay so at the beginning of the show they don't show you for like two weeks and I get it it's a reality right. tv show and they had to show the people that were going to break their leg and get kicked off and they had to show their stories a little <laughs> bit because they were leaving and you were going to be there forever but all those things that we didn't get to see like we were just sitting on the ground weaving baskets for two weeks or like what was because you were, I mean, obviously you were doing things. You were. There's a lot going on in those first couple of weeks. Yeah. So it was all like um, building your amazing shelter, which was like the best shelter. I was like, I want to live there. That's. <laughs> it was. It looked warm and snug and like a real little house, but you were like mm -hmm. literally crafting all the time. Yeah, I mean, when you weren't looking uh, for well, there's all or... kinds of things. I mean, it's it's hard to sum up. It was a huge time. You know, I mean, it starts off with the most important thing that you can be doing is, yeah, getting your shelter set and then starting to, to key into your environment and where the food sources are and strategizing how you're going to avail yourself of those. So the, that was what, you know, my first couple days were scouting my site and deciding where to set up my shelter and um, being sure that I was in the best possible location and then starting to build. And, you know, we, we had snow on day three, oh. so it was full on from the very beginning. And so I was constantly in this place of trying to balance food resources and shelter and you know when I woke up covered in snow obviously that's going to nudge me to prioritize shelter um for that day um but always trying to hold both of those things and um certainly the first few days were more focused on shelter for me because I knew that my body still had a lot of calories in it because yeah. we had been gorging up until we left so I knew that my system had as much energy you know at the very beginning as I was likely to have um and so I wanted to really focus on shelter at first while I knew I still had those, those, you know, glycogen stores in my liver. Um, wow. <laughs> and, um, but by day four, I started hitting fishing really hard. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, 
um, doing, you know, doing a lot more focus on fishing until it became increasingly clear that I was not in a location that had fish. Right. Um, you it, just had very, very shallow water. That must have been so frustrating that you crafted all those lures and you were out there and just sitting for hours. I mean, were you listening to the birds? Like, <laughs> did you? <laughs> you just. I mean, I was doing it. No, <laughs> I was constantly, constantly active, doing everything I possibly could to improve my situation every daylight hour and well into the night by headlamp. There was no downtime and listening to birds. Okay. Um, you know, but that, like the... that's something that I was doing as I was doing everything oh, else, gotcha. you know, like part of my awareness would be there. But, um, but no, constantly, you How... know, bringing in firewood, working on the shelter, you know, strategizing new ways to, to try to make fishing happening, finding, you know, scouting the landscape and seeing whether there were any other better places for fishing, going, you know, making a moose call and going into the woods and calling moose. I mean, I was, I was splitting my strategy between fishing and bringing in moose, but, that, and, you know, you were asking like, what were the resources that I had? My site was very resource scarce compared to a lot of the other sites. I didn't have big game. You know, I was hoping for problems with bears because I had a bow, 45 pound <laughs> bow and broadheads, and I would have been thrilled to have bears sniffing around my camp. And that happened with a lot of other people, but that's not, you know, I was on a narrow rocky peninsula with no fish and no big game and really actually very scarce small game because it was, you know, mostly bear rock. Right. Um, I, so in terms of, you asked earlier, in terms of resources, somewhere like Jordan's area where he had fish and big game and a ton of small game. I mean, he was in an area that had been burned a couple years before, which means there's a ton of vegetation regrowth. It's one of the most abundant sites that, you know, that you can possibly have. Um, and mine, in contrast, was a bare rocky peninsula surrounded by shallow water. Right. So, with where you yeah. got to. Now, here's another question I have. Uh, what's your dance background? And I was so bummed that they only showed you once <laughs> with your because I, I watched all of your YouTubes after and you're like, I was dancing every night. I had a dance party until the last week. And um, not every night, once a week, once, once a, week. a week. Oh, OK. But you sang the sun yep. up every morning. I, I sang the sun down you every evening. Sang the sun down. Um, yeah. But these were rituals. I sang the sun up a lot of mornings, but not every morning because okay. mornings were a lot more challenging, frankly. What, was it just, it was so <laughs> cold? Maybe all the more reason. Was it getting out of bed was just yeah, so difficult? Yeah, it was cold. Yeah, it yeah. was cold. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as time went on, things just, you know, like starving for weeks on end um, and really, really cold temperatures and not sleeping well because generally when one is um, really undernourished and in ketosis, it tends to affect your sleep patterns. Um, so, so yeah, but getting out of a sleeping bag into minus 20 degrees oh. and you haven't had anything to eat for weeks is challenging. Yeah. So I'm, and my voice is a little more croaky in the morning. So, wow. <laughs> so my right. singing practice singing. is more sure. consistent in the evenings than in the morning. And, but these were rituals. So this is kind of goes back to the ancestral thing. So you were creating rituals for yourself out there. And is that what? like helped keep you grounded in and like what what would what did you find Cause I also you also made ancestral plates like you said that when you were cooking your food you were like how did I don't want to like say like how did that witchy stuff help you but I, I mean I'm into it too so but you were you were performing all of these rituals how did that like bolster your attitude and your how you were spending out there because I didn't see anybody else like doing rituals like that yeah, I mean, you know, I think that um, 
I think that ritual has a certain connotation, which isn't necessarily how I would describe it. I mean, I think that has a lot of connotations, some that fit and some that don't. But I would say, yeah, I mean, definitely I wove into my life a lot of practices that reminded me to be coming from a place of gratitude and connection. Um, I just, you know, like I've, I've posted videos about making blood pudding and have some people say that I'm like doing satanic practices or something. So I'm leery around the term ritual sure, because sure, sure, people sure. can take that and yeah. run with it all kinds of weird places. Um, Right. Well, so you're anyway, like a celebrity yeah, now, I, so you you have to you do have to watch what. No, seriously, because words of people. That's I'm not sure the word I would use necessarily, but millions, I have a higher profile than I used to. Millions of people have seen you, like, sir, sure. and all of yeah, the skills that. I mean, do you feel like this was the this is what you've been working your whole life for? Like, all of your skills came to fruition for this time that you were able to survive I mean, not just for that time for for similar things for all time it definitely felt like a fruition of a lot of things but it, i don't like to think of it as like an end goal because then what what do you have after an end goal <laughs> right sure so yes it was definitely a culmination of um of things that have been a huge part of my life for decades um yeah but i hope that it's not the last time oh, no. that i get to use all of those skill sets I'm sure you're using the skills right now. Um, so back, I didn't, a dance background. So were you a dancer as a child? Because you. No, not at all. Um, I mean, I am someone who, lo- I mean, I guess, yes, I got dragged to ballet at four and, you know, did somersaults and tutus and such. But that's the, that's the sum total of my dance background. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who loves dancing and have taken, you know, I have taken different dance classes, but um, mostly just free form, um, you know, like five rhythms and ecstatic dance and that kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't say it's a background, but just something that's a part of who I am and something that I really love. Rad. I just, uh, yay. Um, okay, so I have all of these questions about cameras. Did they train? Okay, so mm-hmm. it was a crazy show to watch because it was beautifully shot. And I know that some of it was be real and like they are a show and they, mm-hmm. they're doing what they do. But the majority of the they stuff... they go over sites with drones occasionally and that kind of thing. So they do, you know, bolster what we do. But you are your own camera person, which I don't... It took me yeah. a while to realize that. I'm like, so do the camera crew... I kept thinking, like, the camera crew gets lunch, like, while they're starving. That's inhumane. That's terrible. But then I realized, like, wait, 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 no. No, there, no there's no camera There's crew. no one there. No, right, no. It, it's actually literally... I mean, the show is called Alone for a reason. Yeah. Quite literal. I just didn't believe it at the beginning, and then I'm like, okay, this is real. So, did they teach you how to use camera, or did they tell you like what shots they wanted you to do, or where? Okay. Yeah. No. Absolutely. That's a big part of the prep before going out. Is um, is yeah the the camera training, and that happens also in the selection process. Um, you know, when they 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 had for my season, I think they had twenty thousand applicants to be on alone. Um. And then, and, and I didn't apply, they, they called me. Um, and so, you know, I kind of got a, got a leg up in that whole process, but, um, but then they narrow those 20,000 down to 20, in my case, 22 people. And then they bring us out to New York for a week to do a bunch of different assessments, um, skills assessments, you know, physical tests, psychological tests. And in that they do a bunch of camera training. And then they're also, um, I think they're also really paying attention to see who cares to dive into the camera training and who's actually really um, prioritizing learning the camera skills because you can have all of the survival skills in the world but if you're not that interested in 
shooting well, then they don't have a show. Right. You know? So very important that, um, that they select people who care to do a good job with a camera training, which, you know, I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, it was beautiful. It was beautifully yeah. shot. And even like when you're, I guess kept thinking like, how much time are you spending with the camera because the sun is going down and you're chipping through this ice and it's 18 inches thick and you didn't have the axe. You had your cool thing that you chopped the trees down with and, and you're just going and going and going. And I was like, how much time did the camera take to set up? And then you have to take it home and well, all these and other that, like, yeah. And that's, that's a huge component. And honestly, you know, I would do it differently now than I did then. I was very, very invested. I mean, really the reason why, and there were a lot of different reasons why I decided to do alone, but a big part of it for me wasn't, you know, I wasn't about the competition. It would have been great to win on some level, sure. And there were some levels where I didn't actually think that winning would be the thing. Um, but m one of my main goals was to demonstrate a different way of approaching survival than what one usually sees on these shows. And, you know, it usually tends to be about like competition and coming from this very antagonistic place with the natural world. And like, mm -hmm. you know, it's me versus nature. And, you know, even one of the shows is called man versus wild, right. you know, and that is the polar opposite to my perspective and how I wanted to be out there. So for me, it was the opportunity to share my perspective with the world stage and knowing that the, you know, the better I did, the more I, the more I proved that going about things from a place of connection and reciprocity rather than domination and, you know, competition is a viable strategy, is a viable strategy for survival. So, um, because that was such a goal of mine, I really took a lot of time with the filming, and that was a huge part. I would say half of my daylight hours and, you know, calories and time and energy went to getting really good shots. Wow. And it would, it would affect what I did, you know. I would choose to do things, like I would process my animals during the day, during the daylight hours, so I could get really good footage of it, when for me, practically speaking, it would be way better for me to leave that animal in my shelter and do it at night because there are tons of things I can be doing out on the land when the sun is out that I can't do in the dark. And the sun was only out for four hours a day by the time I left. So every daylight hour was so huge. And yet I sacrificed a lot of them to get the good camera angles and to set up the good shots and do the good filming. And then it was so disappointing to watch the show and see that like way less than 1% of the things I filmed made it onto the show. And I could have done, so I, I could probably have had twice as much food if I had had twice as much time. Oh. Well, honestly, I'm not sure that that's true because my spot was so resource scarce, but you know, I could have done much better in terms of the survival aspect had I not put so much energy towards filming really well. Um, so, you know, I don't want to say that anything is a regret because it was the most amazing experience I've ever had. And had I shifted some things then maybe other things that I can't know now would have shifted and that would have been a bummer. But I would do it differently in terms of so much time and attention towards filming well if I was to do it again. How many hours a day did they ask you to film? Because we were we were asked to film absolutely everything we did. Wow. So what did they give you batteries we had every legally time? We require that. So we had we had a way to recharge our own batteries. We had a big like essentially like a big car battery um, uh -huh. that we could recharge some of the batteries ourselves, but then they would also give us a ton of batteries when they came to do medical Med checks. checks. And then figured. also early on when they weren't doing medical checks and when the lake wasn't frozen, they would um, 
they would do what they called blind drops where we would have a dry bag and we would leave our dead batteries and our SD cards with our footage on the shore in a dry bag and they would come by with the boat and grab that bag and replace it with a bunch of fresh batteries. So and, we, but they wouldn't you know, talk they never to wanted us to be without batteries. Of course. No, no, like... we, we didn't even see the boat. We weren't supposed to be anywhere near shore when they did that. They would let us know, okay, we're doing a blind drop today. Don't be anywhere on shore, you know, between this hour and this hour. So did you look forward to med checks just because they were people, like when they started happening? Or was it like, oh, med checks, I don't want to, I don't want to know? Or No, I didn't. I didn't really look forward to them. I felt like it really interrupted my routine. I mean, oh. one thing is that a day with a med check was kind of a lost day a lot, in terms right. of no gathering daylight. because they would give me a window when they, when they were coming, but they didn't know when exactly. So I couldn't be that far from my shelter. And my trap lines were a good ways away from my shelter. Yeah. Um, and so... It meant, it meant losing a ton of time. It meant like stripping. I mean, they weighed me. I had to strip down in the freezing cold, you know? Um, and it just, when you're so adjusted to being out there on your own, like I wasn't lonely. I was loving it. I like really had this beautiful um, connection and solitude and, um, you know, having a helicopter land and a whole bunch of people come out and, you know, poke and prod you and ask you a bunch of questions. It's very disruptive. And it was a whole different energy. And it took me a while after they left to kind of get back to my serenity after everything being so stirred up in this whole different type of interaction. Um, so I know I did not look forward to the medical. I mean, I really had a deep connection with a lot of the people um, who were coming with the film crew. Like I really appreciated them as people. And so it's not like I didn't enjoy the interaction when they were there, right. but it was still so disruptive that I would rather have not had it. And towards the end, you know, I was having medical checks a lot more often because I was dangerously underweight and I knew they were very, very concerned about me. So I had the fear of being pulled up, you know, all the time. Um, right. I got my first warning that I was, on medical alert on day 40. Whoa! And so 33 more days, I was out there wondering when I was going to get pulled and having medical checks way too often that were very disruptive and actually really um, affected my ability to bring in food a lot. So it's like, yeah. you're underweight, so we're going to check you more often. And it's like, well, the more that you check me, the more underweight I'm going to get because that's the whole day that I lose a lot of my trapping capacity. Uh, how far, you said your traps were a ways away, like a mile? I'm just trying to think calorie-wise. No, no. no, not uh, that far. I mean, uh, it changed all the time. You know, okay. I had different trap lines set up. I was constantly, I mean, every day I was checking and resetting. Because I had fishing line and not snare wire, fishing line rabbits can chew through in, you know, oh, half a yeah. second. So I was constantly, constantly having to take down and reset up other snares and you know the rabbits would be onto me if I had set up a bunch that they had just nipped off in one area they would stop using that area so I had to constantly be exploiting other areas and you know so there was no set trap line that was there all the time it was you know constant strategizing and shifting up what I was doing how so many sometimes I don't know probably as far as half a mile okay but not not a whole mile away and you know I my territory you don't know how big your zone is, you know, you're not, you have boundaries, you're not allowed to cross, but it's not like they're marked, you know, this is way out in the wilderness. So the way that I would know is if I got a little blip on my GPS device. What? Um, and then let's talk about so, the beavers. Oh, oh, I saw the thing when you talked about the beavers. I want to talk about the beavers. So when everything finally freezes <laughs> up and you're like, all right, I'm going to go get those beavers and you get over to the beavers, you can't get to dang beavers. And then the frozen river and the beeping and the leaving. That was crazy. So 
Yeah. Did you, that was, was that the first time that you felt, <laughs> was that the first time you felt real fear or were there other moments where you were like, I could die right now? Was that the only moment that was at like the end of your journey and you were like, whoa. Yeah, that was the only moment. Really? Sure. You yeah. never felt any, like mm-hmm. that was a kind of fear that like, I can imagine it's like inside, you're like the pit of your being is like, oh, whoa, we need to. Well, and the thing with that frozen river was, yeah, I mean, that was like, I never felt any threats from the outside, like being on the river, that was my own fault. You know, (sighs) that was, that was my own poor choices, right in that moment. So I didn't really have anything. So I felt fear, but I also felt like shame at like, wow, that was a really stupid choice. You just really put yourself in jeopardy. Um, But that was the only moment. No, I really, you know, I, I understand that it maybe should have been scary and um, that it would be for a lot of people, but I felt so seen and held and wanted by that place. I just really didn't feel like there was anything out there that wished me harm. And even, you know, I mean, I was out there on top of that frozen river because I'd been following wolf tracks um, across the ice and, you know, wolves are big predators, but I, you know, I didn't feel like I was in any danger. Which is not true, you know, like something could have decided that I was an even, you know, an easy meal. But even so, I mean, my deepest desire was to be a deep part of that landscape. And that is part of that is part of living wild and wild systems. And so in that way, I mean, I'm sure that had I been attacked by a wolf in the moment, it would have been very scary. But, you know, better was to go out that way as part of a beautiful interaction in a wild place than to get taken out in a car accident sure. you know did you have an so, arrow knocked so i wasn't did you have an arrow knocked uh, when you were on walking that, no i didn't have an arrow knock i'm trying to remember if i even had my bow with wow. me i probably did because i brought my bow everywhere but no i definitely didn't have an arrow knock because you were I just walking and having my bow with me on that trip you were just yeah, experiencing I mean, you know, the beauty uh, of the place it's not that common for wolves to take out people and especially in an environment where they don't see people it's not like we're on the menu it would be an unusual animal that's like what is this thing i've never seen before i guess i'll figure it out by eating it you know (laughs) generally that there would be a curiosity you know the place where you see problem animals is places where humans have been encroaching into wild places a lot and affecting wild animals ability to get game you know like bears attacking people that happens usually in like campgrounds and stuff and places where they're used to associating humans with food um, so yeah, I mean, which is not to say that, you know, that they mightn't be motivated that way, but it just wasn't, I didn't feel in my gut that I was in danger in those ways. Right. So just from yeah, the I had one water. moment when I was coming back. Yeah. Just from standing on top of water, you know, of, of ice that was way thinner than it should have been to me be standing on top of a frozen river. I just didn't realize. And for the, for the, you know, listening audience right now, what she's referring to is a night pretty far out. I think it was night 70, maybe 69 or 70. Um, I, I had hiked out across the ice. I was way out of my bounds. I didn't realize that because the GPS signals and satellite signals are um, really bad out there. So the message telling me that I was way out of bounds didn't come until I was already far out. Um, but it was kind of dusk. I couldn't really, you know, the light was starting to go and I was in this area on this lake, which is this huge lake, um, where the ice was starting to be 
uh, not flat, but kind of bubbled. And I was curious about it. And I thought that it must have been, you know, vegetation or something. And I didn't realize until I was already pretty far out that the reason why it wasn't flat there is because it's actually a, a river. And so it was like the bubbling flow of the river that had frozen and it was not very thick ice. And um, because that's what happens, ice that's on top of flowing water doesn't, doesn't freeze very quickly. So it's a really dangerous, really sketchy place to be. And I just, you know, and that it was so enthralled it was by dusk. these wolf tracks. The, the dust, yeah, so you, they couldn't they have can't, come to help me. They couldn't have flown the helicopter. They, yeah, they wouldn't have Not been that able. they could have gotten there. I mean, if I had gone through ice on top of a fast-moving frozen river, there would have been nothing they could do. I would have <sighs> been stuffed under the ice anyway, and <sighs> the helicopter would have been a non-issue. <laughs> when I knew that, you know, that was, that was, that's the, you know, I've done a lot of wilderness trips in my day and I've never in my life had a button I could push for someone to come save me so (laughs) that wasn't really part of my reality out there like I knew that everything I was doing was a calculated risk and that you know the chance of rescue was a pretty remote one so that that didn't figure into my thinking out there um that's why you're a superhero you're fearless Um, you're a fearless feminist (laughs) superhero I'm not fearless but that those aren't the things that I'm most afraid of I guess Well, okay, so let's switch gears. What are the top five most beautiful things you saw up there that you could, there's probably got to be more than five, Mm. but that you hadn't seen in any of your wilderness journeys that you were just so majestic that, that they didn't show on the show. I mean, they showed a lot of the Northern lights and I kept being like, is that, that's crazy. That was, wow. Um, They are crazy. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that area, Yellowknife, um, in the Northwest Territories, is um, a worldwide destination for Northern Lights tourism. I mean, the streets are awash with tourists um, who come there to watch the Northern Lights. So, yeah, all that footage was very real. Uh, So, yeah, the Northern Lights definitely. I'd seen Northern Lights before. Um, I'd lived in Northern Ontario for a brief time um, and seen some pretty spectacular Northern Lights there. But, yeah, that was those were really, really amazing. Um, the night that I was out on the ice, the night that they showed the footage of where I was trying to get through the ice and realizing that it, in the course of the couple days that I hadn't been out on the ice because there'd been a really intense storm, a really intense storm that dropped the temperature about 20 degrees with just whipping winds. And that storm, the ice went from about four inches thick to about you know 18 to 24 inches thick. Um, so I had been able to get through the ice with the same technique I was using before that. And then all of a sudden there was no way, but that ice, that, that, that night, that sunset was the most epically beautiful, awe inspiring evening of my entire life. And it was really frustrating to me that what they showed instead was me failing to get through the ice and they inserted bleeps. I'm fairly certain I wasn't actually cussing. Um, I don't know for sure. Maybe I was, but they, but they made it look like a hardship. And it was one of the most amazing nights in my life, such that, like, I just fully surrendered after that and was like, if they pick me up tomorrow, I don't care because I got to have this night out on the ice. It was this experience where I was out there and the ice was completely scoured clean, just a mirror surface from this really intense storm we had had for days and days with heavy winds and, you know, like scouring the ice with snow. Yeah. Um, and the sun was going down, and because the storm was just clearing, there were a lot of clouds, so the color was really intense. And the sky was just this amazing hot pink 
orange, you know, beautiful colors. And then I'm standing on this ice that is so smooth that it's reflecting the sunset back at me. So it's like I'm standing in the middle of the sunset. You know, I'm completely surrounded by sunset colors everywhere. And then the night was just so gorgeous. Once I figured out that I couldn't get through that ice, I just decided to go further out onto the lake and just revel in it. And I got further out into the ice in an area where the the pressure of the ice freezing so fast had cracked the surface of the lake. So it's all of these different pieces of ice that had all been kind of pushed up by the pressure of the cracking. And so they were all of these little pieces that were all sitting at a different angle to the sky. So each one was catching a different color. Like Superman. And and reflecting that back at me, it was, yeah, yeah, only sunset. Superman ice cave, sunset time. So epically unbelievable. And then as I'm out there on the ice, the moon is rising, and it's like exactly half of a moon and exactly vertical. So that's rising up over the island as this amazing, it was just the most amazing experience of my entire life. And, you know. Why didn't they show that? You Weeping with beauty. Do you get to keep the footage? Well, because they want to show the drama. No, no, you don't get it. You put footage. the footage. Well, they honestly, can't... I didn't bring the cameras oh. out there. I mean, I did take footage. No, I did take footage of the moon rising, but when I went out to where there was the puzzle pieces, I left the camera set up by that hole, and I just wandered out by myself, which I wasn't really supposed to do. But it was, like, too epic and amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, you know, they could have showed. There was a lot of footage of it. There just wasn't the footage of the, like, me on the puzzle piece part of the ice right. um but because that's not you know they're trying to build the drama and this is the last couple of days and so they're trying to pitch this like you know battle to the end between me and jordan and um you know so just the beauty and wonder um most of my most epic moments i took great footage of that they didn't show um, I they should give i also you that had a, a moment yeah yeah they don't they don't do that um it would jeopardize their show i think is their their perspective on it so yeah those were those were i mean i could go on there are a bunch of them but um <laughs> more beautiful moments no no please mm-hmm. what, what are your other epic like things that were i mean because that's oh, there were so many you can yeah, just pick a random one um, the, the whole place yeah okay so so one moment that was really really profound early on um I mean, the whole thing was that, like, early on when we first launched, it was, you know, we had just been having our first intense frost, um, so everything was changing. The leaves were all changing, so this super, super stark landscape, you know, a huge lake that's like a steel gray most of the time and mostly bare rock, you know, this really amazing granite and huge towering cliffs, you know, vertical cliffs, and the whole landscape is so enormous you can't even begin to wrap your mind around it so like this super stark landscape with these amazing just flame colors of fall you know and I had this moment after being out there for you know going on a couple weeks and not bringing in any food besides just a couple handfuls of berries and recognizing that rather than feeling weaker and weaker I'm feeling better and better and there was just this moment where I realized that I was shifting on a physiological level to where I was learning to be fed by beauty instead of by food and just that like that all hitting me in one moment standing on this rocky precipice looking out over this landscape looking out over this lake and recognizing that even though I'm starving and I don't know how long I can keep going on starving like there's no place in the world I would rather be or anything I would rather be doing in that moment and just that epic beauty 
being so profound that it just brought tears to my eyes. You know, I just like, there was no way to hold all of the emotions in my body. And it just came through in the form of tears um, and recognizing that like I could, I could live on beauty now and I could do that for a really long time and had every intention of doing so. So that was a really profound moment. Um, I had a moment where I was at my cabin working on it and heard, and heard a big kerfuffle of birds, you know, like I, I was really keyed into birds out there um, and I knew their patterns. And so I could tell that there was something unusual happening and, um, and going out to where I heard this and seeing this kind of a classic bird language moment, which was all of these birds in a shape that we call in bird language a parabola around the top of this tree and looking in the top of that tree and seeing a huge um, predatory bird up there, uh, a northern goshawk, I believe it was, which is specifically an avian predator. They're, they take out birds, and so there's something that birds really react to. So having that moment of like being keyed in enough to the landscape to think something's going on, something big is happening and then going out there and finding the source of it and getting to see this amazing bird that I've never seen before in my life. That was a really profound one. Um, I had a really profound encounter with a fox um, that was really beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, seeing tracks, seeing wolverine tracks, you know, I'd never seen wolverine tracks, seeing lynx tracks. That was amazing. Wolf tracks. I mean, all of these wildlife encounters that were creatures that I haven't had the opportunity to live in the territory of before. So, and even though the lynx tracks and the wolverine tracks were like dogging my trap line and potentially major competitors for my food, it was still so amazing to see that, that it, it felt worth it. You know? And so you never, um, it sounds like you just didn't feel alone at all. <laughs> like hmm. you were interacting How could I? So I was surrounded deeply. by life. Yeah. That it was, yeah. It, it's like a completely different journey than other people took. Did the camera help you Apparently, feel? Apparently, which I didn't realize until watching it. Yeah, like, that, that, I had no idea how different my journey was to other journeys until I was watching the show and thinking, oh, my God, I had the time of my life. And these people are out here experiencing the exact same conditions in the exact same place and suffering so hard. Right. That was a really profound realization for me, just how I mean, I knew what a big difference attitudes made. And, and like we talked about, you know, like a lot of my preparations were strategizing routines for myself to help me stay in a place of connection and gratitude. But it wasn't until watching other journeys, you know, other folks on my same season that I really got on a deeper level how profound a difference that was. It must have, it must have killed you to watch Jordan sit there and complain and be like, oh, I'm starving with 200 pounds of moose. <laughs> Look at this. I thought that was so funny. But it I mean, my interpretation of it wasn't that he was complaining as much as that the show was choosing to ah. take those moments out of his footage okay. to make it seem like he and I were neck and neck. Right. Um, so, you know, I have enough experience in knowing how many things I filmed and the things that they chose to show of my things in a way that misrepresented my journey that I believe that that is what they were doing with, with him too. Sure. Not misrepresented, but just, you know, picking and choosing to get a certain impression. Right. To um, get the story that I they wanted. That Jordan was nowhere near as poorly off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause they're, I mean, they are, it is a TV show and they are creating a story. Did you, did the camera become like a friend to you? Did you, when you were oh, absolutely so it was like yeah. it's because it, it feels like you're talking to me when I'm watching or talking to us mm -hmm. or you know the audience yeah no I was very aware of that and you know and I don't know how different the sense of isolation would have been if I didn't have that relationship with the camera I mean and again 
so much of my intention was around showing something beautiful to the world. That was a big part of my mission. And so in that way, I engaged with the audience perhaps more than other folks might have because I wanted to draw you in. I wanted, you know, I know that a lot of these shows, kind of what they do is like, look at this person and all their survivor skills. and They're such a badass, and, you know, and like put you on a pedestal. pedestal. And that, that's not what I wanted. I wanted the viewers to identify with me and see themselves out there and doing the same thing and give them that experience. And so I engaged with the camera in that way. And, and you know, to me, the camera was an audience that I was talking to. And I think that that did a lot for my, you know, mental health out there because while I knew that obviously you weren't actually there and interacting with me and it wasn't in real time, I also knew that I was going to be sharing this. And so that kept me feeling like I was still part of human community as well as the wild community out there, even though it wasn't actually true at the time. Um, And so, yeah, so the camera, you know, it was a mixed blessing. Obviously it was where a lot of my time and energy went and a lot of that felt wasted because they showed so little of my footage, but at the same time, the camera absolutely was a companion and um, kept me aware of the companionship of the whole world of humans that were out there and eventually going to be sharing this with me. And you shared a lot of really personal stuff. I was um, specifically very connected to when you were talking about the money versus not the money and what do you want to do and the self-care on those last days. And you were talking about what you would do with the money and that you've made relationships, you've made choices for your career and for your life that haven't included other things that you would consider like adopting. And all of that whole monologue section, I was just like, wow. I felt like, oh, same thing. The sacrificing of femininity to, to try to get ahead in a certain way and then you look back and you're in your 40s and it's like what did I do I don't have a kid anyway I don't know if that's where you're coming but that's what I felt from it like and I felt that for me I was like oh god I'm 45 I'm 45 and look at my choices and I'm not gonna have a kid and wouldn't it be great to adopt but I don't have the money to do that and like how do you share with the world and feel like you have things to share and then there are choices that you made so those aren't the opportunities that you get and etc. So I felt like really connected to that. And then also when you're talking about your mom and all that stuff and your childhood, and I know they put that into, you know, create a character for you. Um, but do you mm-hmm. feel like the character that they put out, does that, do you feel represented? Do you feel like they got you or do you feel like, well, they tried? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the things that you're referring to, yes. And it's interesting because I still was really, so there's a bunch, a bunch to say about that. One is that they really encouraged us to be really vulnerable and talk about, you know, what was true for us emotionally. And part of my choice to do that was, was that. And I think that you often see people, you know, a lot of things up for people and processing a lot of your life choices. And that was true for me too. But also it was particularly specific advice of one friend who is a friend who has done the show before. I actually have a lot of friends who have done this because those are kind of the circles that I, that I move in. And he told me, you know, like this journey is so intense that you, it's really hard to do just for yourself. And you want to find something, you know, a goal that's about someone that you love or something that you love or really attached to, to make the journey bigger than yourself. And, 
And so that's part of what prompted that conversation was my looking to that. And certainly in terms of finances, you know, I'm a person who has chosen to live under the poverty line for most of my life because I've just always prioritized different things. I've prioritized freedom and, you know, being able to have wild adventures over financial security. And that's fine. But one of the goals that would make, you know, pushing it to get a bunch of money worth it would be something like being able to adopt because again you know I wanted a family so bad for so much of my life and have had a lot of angst around that not happening at the same time it feels representative of like my life before alone and not as much now because I had a lot of time to think about and process those choices while I was out there and recognizing that like I'm so grateful to have the life that I have and the opportunities that I've had. And had I had a family, I probably wouldn't have gone out on a loan. And <laughs> that was the most amazing experience of my entire life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything yeah. right now. And, you know, so I made those choices from the authentic place that I was in when those choices were up for me. So how would I go back and change that now? So I processed a lot of my regrets while I was out there. And so when I came back out, and saw that footage, I was thinking, that doesn't represent me. Mm. But the truth is that it did represent me at one time, just not as much anymore because things have shifted. And I would also say that I'm, I'm someone who has dealt with a lot of sorrow and angst around not having had a family, but I don't think that I am a person who really, like I'm a person with a very positive forward-thinking attitude and not someone who tends to go into like woe-is-me places. Right. And so I feel like Focusing on that maybe painted me a little bit more in that light. Um, but it definitely, I mean, anyone who knows me knows that, knows that it's true that, like, not having had a family has been one of my major sorrows in life. So that's accurate. The part that really bothered me that feels less accurate is when they talked about um, they they did some, uh, some careful editing to create some sentences that I didn't actually speak. Wow. And that was really frustrating. And That is really disappointing that, you know, to I've hear. Never, because you filmed yeah. so much and the, stuff. The one place that that was true, yeah. They, they had me say at one point towards the very end, I've never had enough money to eat well, and that's why I'm here. And that is, like, nauseating to Ooh. me to hear because that's not true, and I felt like it painted a very different picture of who I am. And, um, and it basically made me say that I was there for the money because I was desperate for money because I don't have enough money to eat otherwise, which is absurd. Um, and it is definitely true that I have lived on a lot less money than, you know, like well under the poverty line and that that has affected some of my food choices in terms of like being able to buy all of the healthiest organic food and whatever I want all the time. And yet the way they made it say that is like that I've been so poor that I'm starving and that that was my motivation for being on the show. And that was like a complete 180 and the furthest thing from the truth. So in that way, I felt very misrepresented. And, um, you know, I've had people write me saying, like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I hope you can afford to eat now. And oh, I'm just like, oh, God. my God. <laughs> That's awful. And, you know, I think that overall, you know, that one part. So they, they do interviews with you before you go, when you come back, and when they come and do medical checks. And sometimes they use that those audio clips and overlay it onto your time out as if it's what you're saying in the moment. Sure. And that's what happened with that clip. And it wasn't, that was, that was a moment when I like went out to the lake to sing this beautiful song of hope and joy. And instead they did this overlay of audio saying, I'm so poor me. I'm so poor. I can't afford to eat. And I'm just here so that I can afford to get a decent meal for once. And oh. um, 
I think that most people, most everyone I feel like who has written me, which is like hundreds, thousands of people, um, that part of the message is not what they can, like, I think it's clear of like my energy and most of the things that like my joy and my positivity were what came through more. And the contrast of that one sentence was, um, you know, was big enough that they don't even see that as part of my journey. It seems like most people who write, and I hope that that's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that's a sore spot for me. That's the one major sore spot for me. And, um, and with and the whole fair enough. Um, I, yeah. Kat Plank is a person. She wanted to ask a question. Um, your master's degree is in what? And uh, she says... Environmental science. Environmental oh, science. Sorry, I'll let you finish. Oh, no. So she said mm -hmm. she's personally curious about your background, so environmental science, and it's obvious that you have mad skills that are extremely niche, um, but how did you decide to learn those kinds of skills? And So I guess it would be when you were, when you were 19, or was it when you were younger even, that you, you already said at the beginning you went into a, a, a skills program... A wilderness program when you were 19 was that when you started this journey into ancestral skills or was it before that that you had a great interest even like as a young child yeah that's a great question definitely as a young child um i was always super fascinated like all of my favorite books you know like i had a book about ishii when i was a kid and all of the little house books and laura ingalls um wilder's story and island of the blue dolphins like those were the books that i loved and you know hatchet and that kind of thing so i was obsessed with these things as a kid and like all of my childhood games were me as karana on the land like i would pick red clover blossoms and you know put them in a hole in the ground because i was saving up food for the winter you know that was that was what I was obsessed with. But I didn't think that those things were, you know, I thought that that was from the past and not something that was available to me. So, um, so I, you know, I always did a lot of things with my hands. I was into sewing and knitting and crocheting and that kind of thing. And like the handcrafts that were available to me, but I didn't really have other avenues. Um, you know, like I grew up in a rural place, but you know, we weren't, we weren't, we grew strawberries and we grew a small garden, but you know, we weren't like harvesting wild food or anything. This wasn't in my, wasn't in my background and how I was raised up. Um, but I was always looking for that stuff. And when I was, um, I think a freshman or a sophomore, I think a sophomore in college, and I went to school for biology and environmental studies. So like a deep connection to the natural world was always a part of me. And my parents were both outdoor people. My dad was a, an endurance runner doing 100-mile trail runs, and cool. my mom was a backpacker and in the Sierra Club. So I spent a lot of time hiking and, you know, out in wild places as a kid. Um, but it was when I was a sophomore in college that a friend of mine gave me a book, um, The Tracker by Tom Brown Jr., um, where he kind of talks about using these skills in his childhood um, coming into relationship with the land. And that was really inspiring to me. And so when I wanted to do a field course one summer, I specifically looked for one um, that might have some, some of those skills and found, um, found one that had instructors who had taught some ancestral skills. And so I chose the course based on that. And that's not what the focus of the course was, but it was a big focus for me because that was where my interest laid. Um, and then they told me about a skills gathering that they had been to that was all focused on ancestral skills. And so I went to that and that was um, when I was 19. And so that was what really showed me that in fact, this was something that was still available that people were still doing. And then from that point on, I just threw myself into it wholeheartedly and 
definitely kind of had like fantasies about running off naked into the wilderness, you know, with just my knife and living there forevermore. And um, my first gathering was when I was introduced to buckskin clothing and that completely changed my life and became my biggest goal was to, you know, learn to tan hides and make clothing for myself. And um, so, yeah, from that point on, anytime I wasn't in school, I was, I was out in the woods by myself doing skilled stuff um, or going to gatherings whenever I could and spending summers on some land in Idaho with a bunch of folks who were teaching and practicing skills and, you know, organizing Stone Age trips and harvesting wild food and just, you know, learning as much as I could in every possible way. Um, And, you know, then I had, then I had a period in my early twenties where I kind of, where I was involved in a relationship and with my first husband and um, that wasn't really the life that he wanted to live. And I felt like I ended up compromising a lot on how, how I was living for, for love, you know, for that relationship. And um, that was how I ended up in grad school actually was kind of trying like not, not being happy in the normal working world. And I was working, you know, interesting jobs. I was doing environmental ed and working as a naturalist in a state park and doing cool stuff, but it just wasn't, me it wasn't the life that I wanted I wanted something so much more wild and rugged and um really had this period of feeling like I compromised so much of myself and lost myself and became really deeply depressed and um even suicidal we have like the um, same story it's tripping me out but keep going (laughs) wow yeah yeah it's a I think it's a common one um so yeah so I spent a lot of my 20s compromising on what I wanted to do. And then eventually um, I was in grad school when I kind of, I don't know, like came to a place where I realized that like my soul was dying and I couldn't, I couldn't do what I was doing anymore and ended up, you know, leaving my husband, quitting grad school. I, I had enough credits to get my degree, but I quit my thesis. So I ended up graduating with a non-thesis science degree, which means you can't really work in academia. You can do a lot of other things, but you're not going to ever go on to be a professor or anything um, or a researcher. But um, but I, it was pretty clear that I didn't want to anyway at that point. So yeah, so I ended up, you know, quitting grad school, leaving my husband and moving away from my like, you know, easy house outside of town and running off to Northern Ontario um, with someone that I met at a friend's wedding who was about to go out on this crazy journey and um, living up there for a while until the Canadian government kicked us out. <laughs> and from that moment on, just really absolutely devoted to living my life and not compromising on that again and living a much wilder, less conventional life. Um, but yeah, I've, I came to that through compromising and trying to, you know, quote, be normal and live a normal life for a while and just being absolutely miserable and feeling trapped and, um, yeah. And you, you gave know, up learned, the safety. Learned the hard way. You gave up the safety for your gave truth. Up the safety for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, I did yeah. the same thing. I was married for a long time and, and I left him and all, it's very, very similar story, very depressed, trying to, blah, blah, and now I do what I want. Yay! So I'm glad that you, yeah, I have and like, I think it's, it's been gratifying because, yeah. Well, I just have a, I have a couple more questions for you because we've been going for an hour and I don't want to take up too much of your time because you're so awesome. But I mean, I, I want <laughs> to take up all of your time, but I don't, I also don't want to, you know, so finish your thing. And then I have like two more questions. Oh, I was just going to say that at the time, I think it was hard, you know, it was like quite devastating for my husband. We're still very good friends. He's a wonderful man. But, you know, I think at the time he never really believed me mm-hmm. about why I was dissatisfied and how I said I wanted to live. Um, and 
you know, because I was not doing those things. I had been compromising. So it's like, yeah, you say that. But but I think now, and especially after alone, now he's like, okay, yeah, I, I get it now. I get that what you were saying all along of what you actually needed and wanted. Yeah, it makes more sense now. <laughs> 73 so gratifying days. in that way. But like, yeah. Uh, so have you ever thought of going back to your Arctic Peninsula, like during the summer? I would love to. Yeah, yeah, no, I love to. I mean, once once I have a little bit more space in my life, that is definitely um, a very much a goal. I intend, I intend to do so. I also intend to spend some time on that lake, places where one can actually catch fish and just <laughs> gorge on trout. <laughs> yeah, I saw those beautiful fish. Um, okay, so yeah. my last question, it might be totally inappropriate, but, and I can cut it out <laughs> of the interview if you want. Okay, the way I came to the show, because I, I'm a stand-up comedian, I watched the show <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't watch porn, it's not my thing, not, I'm not into it, but <laughs> I was watching alone because it hits all of my triggers, like, it's like emotional lumberjacks crying, it's like survival starving, <laughs> it's like all the Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff I love, so I made this like big long joke that I've done on stage about how it's my porn and I, I masturbate to it when I'm alone, <laughs> quote unquote, right? So my question is, That's great. when you're out there and we're at the base of humanity, was there any like sexy time? Feel Did it not even enter your head at all? Or was there any like, I mean, were you so, I'm just, because I'm, I'm thinking about ancestral skills and I'm thinking about people used to live out there and babies were made yeah. and this is a part of being human. <laughs> right. I mean, I was isolated the whole time. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I don't, I, I think probably differently than you experience it. Cause to me, it's my norm. You know, I think that often things that people eroticize are things that are like outside of their norm and therefore exciting. And so in that way, that, that experience wasn't, but there is definitely something about that, like that primal energy of being out on, you know, in a wild place and um, experience things in the way it's very, you know, it's very physical. It's very rooted in the body and it's, you know, the like life and death and like getting down to the nitty gritty of life. And sure there's, there's a sexual energy in there. And, uh, and yeah, no, that like towards the end where I had been starving. And just so you know, like I tend to be kind of a no holds barred kind of person. I'm, I'm pretty, um, <laughs> I'm a pretty open book, so this doesn't feel inappropriate, but, um, you can edit it out if you think. That's no, no, hey, I'm fine with it. But I yeah, watched no. the whole poop. I watched the whole poop video and I was like, it's scintillated. <laughs> like I watched right. the whole 22 yeah, minute poop yeah. video. I was like, all right. right. I mean <laughs> yeah, no, I tend to just talk about the stuff that needs talking about. So whatever, but yeah, no, I mean, I would say that like that, uh, there wasn't like more sexual energy for me out there than there would be otherwise, but it wasn't absent um, until towards the end when I had been really starving for a long freaking time. Because, you know, like starting to digest your own muscles kind of takes it out of you. Right, right. <laughs> There's actually a moment where when they were out for a medical check and 
I, I somehow like this happens to me where I will say something and not realize the connotation of it afterwards. But there was something where I like invited one of the people to spend the night in my cabin with me, when, which like obviously it was not going to happen. But like, and and the, the film people were kind of like, "Ooh, should we like be present for this conversation?" And then I was like, "Oh, that did sound like that, didn't it?" But uh, <laughs> Do you want to spend the night but, um, in my yeah, that, wilderness that was cabin. Funny. <laughs> I think it was like just after I had made the bed or something. They're like, "Oh yeah, that looks pretty cozy." And I'm like, "Heck yeah, it is. Yeah, try it out." Um, <laughs> something like that. But I always, I always laugh that everybody was like, everybody turned a little bit red after that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's. Well, I, this has been amazing. Can you like plug Bucks Begin Revolution? Give us your website, your YouTube, what you you know, how people can. Like, do you have a book? Can have you read? Have you written a book yet? When's your book coming out? Like, um, I have I have several book projects in the works right now. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that I can say about all of that. So my business is Buckskin Revolution, and um, you know the mission of my business is to empower people with the skills to you know, tend to their needs with their own two hands and from the landscape around them. And so it's about, it's about ancestral skills. And it's also about applying those skills, like having those skills, even if we don't use them, that knowing that we have them changes how we are in our daily life and comes, has us coming from a place that is uh, feeling empowered rather than feeling trapped in the system and feeling like a whole person who is actually using the the physiology that we evolved to have um and also you know just recognizing ourselves as wild creatures and with a profound relationship to the wild so having things in our daily lives whatever they might be that remind us of our connection to landscapes outside you know you might not need to go out and forage your own food every day but could you have a little you know a buckskin bag hanging on your wall where you know that it came from a wild creature and therefore it's kind of an anchor for the wild in your life even if you're living in an apartment building in the Bronx you know wherever you find yourself can you can you integrate a little bit of the wild into your life um, so, you know, connection to the landscape around us, connection to who we are on a deeper level, connection to our human community, connection to our ancestors, um, and skills for actually land-based living, you know, um, growing, storing, um, food, medicines, all of those things. So, um, and part of my mission really is to spread those as far and wide as I can, and that's why I've been focusing more on um, you know, videos and online courses and writing recently. And I, you know, have traveled around the country teaching this stuff for the past several decades. Um, that's been a huge part of my life. And that's really rewarding to me. And I intend to keep doing it. But these days, since the bigger platform um, and the publicity of alone, a lot more people are interested in what I'm doing. So I'm trying to, um, to branch into the video stuff to make it more accessible to people who couldn't come and do a class in person. So there's a lot of ways to be involved in what I'm doing. Um, I have an online skills gathering happening right now. Last week is going to be the last week to register for that. But that's uh, an entire you know, week's worth of classes spread out over 10 weeks of all of the skills like we're talking about, all of the background that, um, that you know, prepares you for more time in the wild and more land-based living. Um, also, I have a Patreon membership, which is a, a 
crowdfunding platform, but it's a membership based. So you're, you know, um, you're part of a team, basically the Buckskin Revolution Patreon team. So that is a huge part of allowing me to do a lot of the videos and writing. And eventually I'm hoping to be able to hire people to help me with my video editing because I can only, I'm doing everything myself right now and there's only so much I can produce. So I could get a lot more out there if I had more support um, and able to, to hire folks to support me in that. So check me out on Patreon. That is www.patreon.com backslash Wonia Buckskin Revolution. And you get all kinds of benefits for that. And it's a lot more interactive and reciprocal and, you know, exclusive content and, you know, merchandise for certain things, your name in my books and getting to ask questions and a lot more, a lot more interaction. Um, so I really encourage people to do that. That's a huge part of what supports me right now in being able to do this stuff. Um, the mailing list on my website will get you um, in my system so that you get my newsletters, which has my teaching schedule. Um, obviously, most of my in-person teaching has been canceled um, due to COVID, but I will be getting back to that. And I also do mentoring through um, Sage FM, which is a which is a mentoring platform where folks can call in and do um, live video and phone consultations. And so that's a way to you know get one-on-one help with your skills um, and you know like I can walk you through brain tanning you can ask questions about a loan you can ask questions about I just had a great conversation last week about how to keep a positive attitude in the face of challenges and adversity um, so yeah I'm really trying to do what I can to make a positive impact on the world and um, also you know social justice is a part of, of buckskin revolution and a part of the revolution and so trying to make these skills more accessible to more people because I feel like you know, there are a lot of people who are disenfranchised and yeah. don't have access to even just getting out into the woods and nature. So trying to do what I can to spread access in more ways so that more people, you know, feel empowered and feel like they have some control over their, their lives and their choices and they're not just pawns in a system that they don't understand um, and, you know, can't control, which, like, I get because that's how I felt in my 20s when I was trying to plug into the system and it wasn't working for me. Um, yeah. You're what amazing. Else? I'm on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, there are so many ways to be involved in what I'm doing. And yes, I do have a couple books. My Patreon members have access to my writing before it's published. Ooh. For many years, I was selling the rough draft of my book about buckskin clothing. Right now, the only way that you can get that is if you're a Patreon member, at certain levels, you get that rough draft copy of my book that's close to published, but not there yet. Um, you get that for free at certain levels, or you get to buy it for a discounted rate at other levels. So, um, yeah, working hard to pump a lot of good resources out there into the world so we have a society of happier, healthier, more whole, more empowered, more inspired, and inspiring people. Yay! This has been, like, <laughs> the highlight of my whole like, I can't even tell you, this is a dream come to fruition. I never thought, you're a real person doing real things. <laughs> of ah. course I am. Yeah. There are all, the other things we didn't get into are like your philosophies on entitlement and like feminism and stuff. But maybe another time. This has been incredible. And I thank you so much for your time. And I, and I can't wait to see what happens next um with you and buckskin revolution and everything else online and everybody join the patreon and thank you so much for talking to me on mutiny radio uh and i I'm hope so that glad we can, to thank you so much for asking yeah i hope we can promote anything that you're doing in the future again this has been like thank you so much have a beautiful rest of your day enjoy <laughs> the sunshine thank you and i thought the cat was alive i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's that's
that's okay. Yeah, no problem. Right. Well, yeah. thanks so much for your time, and I hope to talk to you again someday thanks, soon. Sam. Have a great day. Bye. Sam's great. Yeah. Yep, we'll be in touch. Yep, all right. Bye. <laughs> that. That was Ronia Ronia Thabot, everyone. You can see her online on uh, on Facebook. Her fan page is uh, Winnie Dawn. And that has been an awesome interview. And I'm so proud of myself because I didn't cry. I didn't cry. All right. So call me Tim, everyone. I've been Pam Benjamin. That was Winnie Dawn. This is MutinyRadio.fm. Hey, hit up our uh, Venmo. Mutiny Radio, all one word.
50,000 watts in a big acoustic tower. Security's so tight tonight. Oh, they're ready for a tussle. Gotta keep your backstage passes. The promoter had the muscle And so it goes And so it goes And so it goes And so it goes But where it's going No one knows And so it goes And so it goes And so it goes And so it goes But where it's going No one knows In the tall buildings At the head of our nations Worthy men from Spain and Siam All their discussions with the Russians But they still went ahead And beat all the plan Now up jumped the U.S. representative He's the one with the tight eyes 747 for him in that condition Flying back on a peacekeeper mission And so it goes And so it goes And so it goes And so it goes But where it's going, no one knows. So it goes, and so it goes, and so it goes, and so it goes. But where it's going, no one knows.